So, good evening. You all look remarkably bright and alert <laughs> for the first day of a retreat. Usually we're used to seeing a little more sleepiness and dullness. And how are you guys doing? You're in silence, so... <laughs> So congratulations for making it through the first day of retreat. We regard this as a great success that you're all still here. So, um, so it can be quite an adjustment, as you may have noticed from the busyness of your days and work and multitasking and to go to slow, moving, stepping, unitasking. And sometimes uh, the, the arrival, the arriving here the first day or two can be a little bumpy. Anybody had a bumpy day, challenging day? Some, yeah. So just from, you know, just the, just the transition from the speed of our lives and the, you know, the main practice that we do in our lives is probably thinking, right? So we come here and we're sitting and doing nothing but being present and we're often bombarded by a lot of thoughts and restlessness and agitation. Someone gave me this cartoon the other day, two Zen monks, a Zen master and, and a student, and the Zen master said, uh, Something like, you have been incredibly thoughtless. Very good work. <laughs> and the student says, thank you, Master. <laughs> not that we're about cultivating thought-free meditation. That's not the point. The point is to be awake and to be aware and to be present to whatever appears, whether it's a thinking mind or a quiet mind or a restless mind or a dull mind or a hating mind or a beautiful mind. So often what can appear on the first day of a retreat is a lot of doubt. What am I doing at this place with all these people? <laughs> who are these people? And who are those teachers, more importantly? Why didn't I go to that spa? <laughs> or that vacation? Or that beach? Or that place where I could at least talk to people? So whatever's happening today and maybe even tomorrow, um, see if you can meet it all with a lot of spaciousness and ease, that it's there's inevitable bumps in the road as we you know, settle into this form of living, which is quiet, slow, still, contemplative, with almost zero distraction except the notice board out there that you probably all read about 53 times today already, and the label on the back of the toilet paper and that kind of thing. It's, it gets very exciting when you're on retreat. But basically, you're just simply with yourself, and we don't do that. We, we've got so many great gadgets now to avoid ourselves. You know, We can check our email every moment of the day. How exciting. And one of the things that we get to see as we come to retreat is the habits that we live with, the habits that make up 
uh, our personality. There's a great line from Padmasambhava, a Tibetan teacher, who said, if you want to understand the present, look to your past. No, I mean... (laughs) If you want to understand the past, look to your present conditions. If you want to understand how you've been living, just pay attention right now and you'll see the, the consequences of that. The mind, the, the habits, the energies that move through you. And more importantly, if you want to, uh, um, <laughs> if you want to understand <laughs> your, future, your future conditions, look to the present conditions that you're living in. Look to your present actions. So, so Dharma practice is saying that you know, we have a choice. We have tremendous liberating capacity to transform our experience. No matter how difficult, no matter how challenging that might be. So, and if all else fails, you can sign up for this meditation course that I have available here. It's called Ultra Meditation. Um, it says in 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. And it's the five-level ultra meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe all in 28 minutes. So if you're finding this Vipassana to be a drag, then you can just sign up for this, <laughs> this practice here, which is available from who knows where, some website. So I um, wanted to wish you a happy solstice, happy summer solstice. It's such a glorious day. Such a glorious summer solstice. The light has been accompanying us all day so beautifully. So I want to um, to sort of wrap the talk that I want to give around the theme of solstice and light. Seems kind of fitting to do that. So, um, and I have some poems to read. Um, if you don't like poems, please bear with me. If you do like poems, you're in for a good time. Um, so, um, but I, I want to speak about how the, the quality of light is a metaphor for the light of awareness, which is really the central practice that we're doing here is cultivating the light, this innate quality of wakefulness. There's a poem from the poet Hafez that goes something like this. My memory is a little shaky right now. We'll see how well I do. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. The earth never says to the sun. <laughs> Here we have an alternate version of the poem from my left. <laughs> So moving right along. (laughs) So I want to read a poem about Monet, the the, the painter Monet, who, um, for those of you who don't know, was exquisite painter. I imagine most people know who the French poet, the French painter Monet was, who was really a master of light. He was an impressionist, but really his paintings are all about the subject of light and its relationship with form. And so this poem written by uh, Lizelle Muller uh, called Monet Refuses the Operation. 
Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that that the line I call the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before I could see, ruined cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun, and now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you the Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night, to become the fluid dream of the Thames. I will not return to a universe of subjects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches. To paint the speed of light, Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms, and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world, blue vapor without end. So I love that poem because it speaks so beautifully of that, that world that he lived in where um, he didn't see form so discreet and separate. You know, he was actually seeing in a way that the, the Dharma, the teachings encourage us to see that the things, that the, the, the dualities, the separations that we create are actually really of our mind's creation and that the world is much more fused and suffused and interwoven and interconnected than we, than we can ordinarily perceive. And so I think Monet's paintings were uh, pointing at that. So the Buddha, as you may know, uh, lived in northern India. He was born uh, under a grove of trees, He spent his uh, years before his enlightenment practicing, meditating in the forest. He attained awakening under a tree. He spent the next 45 years of his life walking in the forests and plains of northern India and doing um, rains retreats every year, three-month rains retreats in bamboo groves and beautiful groves. And so he was clearly immersed in the natural world and uh, much of his teaching, the metaphors and the similes, come from that immersion. And one of the metaphors he uses is light. So I'm going to speak to some of those references. He says, just as in the last month of the rains in autumn, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun on ascending the sky overpowers the space immersed in darkness, shines, blazes, and dazzles. In the same way, all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness, converge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is reckoned the foremost among them. So he's making this reference that that awareness, this quality of mindful presence that you've been developing, is like a light, and it is like a light. It radiates, it touches, it illuminates who we are and what we're paying attention to. There's a poem um, that Mary Oliver writes that's in reference to a teaching that I'll share in a minute about 
one of the Buddha's last instructions. She writes, Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. Make of yourself a light. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signals, a white fan streaked with with pink and violet and evergreen. An old man, he lay down between two salad trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of waves. No doubt he thought of everything that happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of an inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. And he said this. Make of yourself a light. Be, be lamps unto yourselves. Be refuges to yourselves. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp, as a light. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourselves. And those people, Ananda, who is his disciple he's talking to, and those Ananda who shall be a lamp unto themselves, who hold fast to the truth as their lamp and holding fast to the truth as their refuge, it is they who will reach the topmost heights. So I love that image, that metaphor. He's, he's giving us the instruction. This is his last instruction, one of his last instructions. And then, then his final words were, um, with mindfulness, strive on, work out your liberation with, with, with awareness. But he's saying, use this practice, use this quality of light, of presence, of awareness, of knowing. Make this your refuge. What other refuge do we have in this world? Howard talked about the three refuges of taking refuge in in awakening, in the truth, and in the community. Where do we take refuge? Where do we put our refuge? The Buddha is saying, the only true reliable refuge is in, this, is in the innate quality of your being, this innate capacity to be present, to know that's what wakes up, that's what is awake. So in all the things that you do here, the sitting, the walking, the asana practice, all the difficulties you might encounter, see if you can trust in this knowing, this quality of presence that is able to be present to all of your experience, no matter how difficult or how beautiful. So how do we do this? We do this through the practice, through the cultivation of mindfulness, the cultivation of attention, the systematic bringing a presence moment by moment to whatever's unfolding. And in the beginning, it's not necessarily so easy because one, we haven't necessarily been taught how to be present. We're told to be present. (laughs) 
at school and elsewhere at work, but we're not taught how to be present. And it's, and it's subtle. And it's an art and it's a discipline. You know, mostly our minds are very undisciplined. They're scattered. They're like sort of a hyperactive you know, puppy on caffeine and wandering here, there, and everywhere. How many, how many people's minds feel a little scattered today? Yeah. So that's the consequences of, of, of what we've been practicing in our lives, which is not so much so focused attention. And so in the beginning, especially the, the, the beginning of a retreat, the, the practice is a training. It's a discipline. And we're learning how to simply return, as Anna was saying, to arrive, to be here, to arrive, to return, to return, to return, to return, to return. Because guess what? We keep spacing out. We keep being pulled into the habit, the trance, the seduction, mostly of our thinking mind. Yeah. Anybody notice their thinking today? Yeah. Yeah, just a few people note I noticed. Put their hands up. So we cultivate this quality of samatha using mindfulness of breath, using attention to walking and to the yoga posture, simply being present. We're unifying that scattered, restless mind to a single point, to the, to the you know, feel of your, the sole of your foot spreading on the yoga mat or the movement of your in-breath and your out-breath. And it requires a lot of patience requires patience with our mind that's like this untrained puppy. Right? And it's a really important quality. It's very easy to get frustrated. We have these often very optimistic and perhaps grandiose hopes for our, our retreat and our practice. You know, by day one, you know, I'm going to be you know, almost enlightened, and day two, it's going to all happen, and you know, I go home. Um, we expect our mind to be thought-free. Whoever thought that, I, that came up with that idea that meditation is about not having thoughts. So we need to develop, develop patience, acceptance, accepting where we are. Acceptance is sort of the, one of the grounds of mindfulness and the grounds um, of, any, of any quality that we develop. We first have to learn how to meet what's happening. So to ask yourself that question, how am I at meeting myself as I am. How am I about meeting this experience as I am? Right now as you're sitting, maybe you're loving this talk, maybe you're hating this talk, maybe you're hot, maybe you're tired, maybe you're bored. How are you meeting this with acceptance, with presence? We're cultivating a quality of beginner's mind, trying to be with our experience without the precondition of from the past, thinking we know what's going to happen, we know what trikonasana is like, we know what this breath's going to be like. No, it's always new. We try to bring our attention close, curious. Vipassana is a direct experience, not knowing our experience through our mind, but what's actually happening. What's the breath actually like? Sometimes we've never ever felt a breath without our story, our thoughts, or our images about it. There's this great short poem from a uh, poet, Kohad, who says, I cast my brush aside... I cast my brush aside. From here on, I'll speak to the moon face to face. From here on, I'll speak to the moon face to face. And through this quality of mindful presence, we become more open. We become more aware, more present, more sensitized, more receptive, more tuned. And these are really important 
qualities <coughs> that we need to bring to our experience if we're to learn and understand what's going on. This is a poem I wrote called Touched, which speaks to this. But what of our lives? What sparks that touch which opens the veil for a pure, brief window? The scattered coins of rocks lining the stream bed, the sorrow of the lone goose, and the particular angle of the ponderosa pine, bent over the years by the unrelenting wind. If I hope for anything, it is to be an open canvas, waiting for the touch of the soft brush, or the fine cello strings longing for the kiss of the bow. For it is in these moments the heart comes alive, our mind sparks open, and for that brief time it all begins to make sense, and perhaps at least for a moment be worthwhile. And as we're practicing, cultivating this quality of presence, one of the things that we like to stress and remind you is this quality of presence of awareness is already within you. It's not something we're grabbing here that we keep in a closet at Spirit Rock that you get access to. It's something that's already alive and awake within your own being, that we're learning how to see and uncover that which is obscuring it. So this is a quote from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is a, which is a text read to people as they're dying um, as a way to remember this innate quality of presence that we all have. It says, remember the clear light. So, so as I'm reading this, look to your own experience of presence and of awareness as I'm saying this. Remember the clear light, the pure, bright, shining white light of your own nature. It is deathless. If you look into your experience, you can see that they are composed of the same pure, clear light as everything else in the universe. No matter where you are or how, how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away. It is never too late to recognize the clear light. Let go into the clear light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own nature. It is home. So this practice is really one of coming home to that nature. So we'll do a practice. We'll do a, you have to change your posture. Uh, And the instruction is for the next 30 seconds or a minute to not pay attention to anything. Do not be aware of anything. Okay, so we'll just sit quietly. No effort, no attention, no awareness. What do you notice? Anybody in that practice of not noticing anything? Anybody? It's impossible. impossible. Exactly. Thank you. It's impossible not to be aware. It's impossible not to pay attention. Even if you're trying not to pay attention, you're noticing that you're trying not to pay attention. Even if you're checking out, you're noticing you're checking out. So this awareness is an ever-present resource we can draw on. So the question is, what are we paying attention to? If awareness is present in every moment, 
What is it present to? This is a really important question. Where is, where is the tendency, where is our habit, where is that movement of presence going? Right? And perhaps you're noticing as you're sitting and walking and doing yoga today, you're noticing mostly it's bumbling around this coconut up here. Thinking, planning, judging, remembering, reminiscing, fantasizing. So Carl Jung, uh, in reference to this, this, this question in a way, uh, about what we pay attention to, had this to say. He said about where do we, where do, what do we shine our awareness on? He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not very popular. <laughs> so making the darkness conscious, that's partly what we're doing in practice, in meditation, making the darkness conscious. Looking at that which is unconscious in the shadows that may be causing a lot of difficulty and stress and suffering. So rather than running away from it and keeping running to the light, which is you know, doable for a while, but eventually catches up with us, in this practice we turn towards whatever wants to reveal itself, including that darkness. And there will be times when that reveals itself. And it may not necessarily be so easy. But this practice is about opening to and liberating all of those, all of those parts of ourselves, understanding them, meeting them with kindness, it's very easy to get lost in what's called spiritual bypassing, which is to want to just solely hang out in the light, in the heart and in love, and it's all good and it's all one and it's all beautiful. But I hate my neighbor's dog and that mosquito that just bit me and yada, 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 right? We want the fullness of the human experience, which is both light and dark. And in that going into that journey of making the darkness conscious is usually where we reap the most richest fruits in our lives and our practice. We don't necessarily wish upon ourselves or anybody to have to walk through those dark paths, those difficult journeys, but it's inevitable. Being in a human body that gets sick, that gets old, that experiences loss, that experiences fear and anxiety, all of that, it's an inevitable part of the human journey. And so practice is asking us, the teachings are asking us, how do we bring our presence to that? So I want to read another poem that I wrote recently called Finding Ourselves, which speaks to this. What do you now have to give up to truly find yourself? What has to be let go? The numberless faces you have to disappoint the arms outstretched demanding your attention, wanting your time, begging for your presence. What allows you to turn towards the one who has been forgotten, neglected, even abandoned? Perhaps you don't know the voice living inside that lives a separate life, the one you have ignored while trying to satisfy those other cries. It takes a certain will, a bold act of courage, even a moment of grace for you to remember the shade of your own face, 
the taste of your own skin and to know the beat of your heart. And in that turning there will be times you will feel banished to the wasteland, scorned for your selfishness, dismissed for not helping, disowned for straying. But there comes a time when you finally realize you have to go into the night to find your true inheritance, something only found in the stillness of the dark, in the bitter regions of grief, in the desolation of loss. Terror may reign there, even hopelessness and confusion, and you may be stripped bare, but you sense there is no choice but to keep diving into the abyss. There you will face your own annihilation and stare into the mirror of your infinite aloneness until after some time, perhaps an infinity, that wasteland becomes familiar, loneliness becomes a memory, and you feel strangely at home, finally at ease in your own company, not divided against yourself, where you find everything stands solitary yet intimate, not yet understood but felt. And from that dark night you step back into the day, though its colors may blind you and bewilderment comes, you come to know who you are, the same yet transformed. The old tugs don't catch you, and you move lighter, not weighed down by the call to leave yourself again, not for anything. That road lies a sure death. This path speaks of emergence. So perhaps for some of you that's familiar, that journey, that descent, that looking into the difficult places. And the question is, how do we meet all that? With rejection, with love, with curiosity, with questioning, with interest. For the Buddha, when he was meditating under that tree 2,600 years ago, this light of aware- he turned this light of awareness di- towards his direct experience to understand his mind, his body, and the reality that, of this human predicament. And he came to see certain laws, certain aspects of our experience that he found to be tremendously liberating, tremendously supportive of, of, of allowing us to understand what binds us and what allows us to be free. And so this teaching, as many of you know, is encapsulated in his teaching called the Four Noble Truths, which is really the foundational teaching of the Buddha and pretty much all of the teachings fall under this foundation. So, just to briefly summarize that teaching, is to see that the the inevitability of human experience, the inevitability of unsatisfactoriness, the inevitability of suffering and pain that will happen in this lifetime in this body. That there's no avoiding that. It's not a problem, it's not a mistake. And that there are certain causes and conditions which lead to uh, entrenchment and exacerbating uh, and enmeshing ourselves in suffering, particularly mental suffering. And he noticed the tendencies we have of 
always being in contention, always being in, in struggle with reality, always wanting something other than what's here, always resisting that which we don't want and we don't like, always trying to get somewhere, trying to be somebody different, trying to improve, trying to always being in struggle with what's here in the moment. Anybody been in struggle with the moment today? Anybody been wanting something different to be happening, something better to be happening, wanting your body to be a little more elastic, a little more supple, a little less stiff, your meditation to be a little more quiet, your mind to be a little or a lot quieter? Right? We're always So that those, those movements, those, uh, those desires are somewhat harmless. It's what we do with them. Do we, do we demand those things happen? Do we get really angry with ourselves for thinking? Do we get really rejecting of our body for being so stiff that we can't touch our toes? Which is mostly true in my case. (laughs) Even after 25 years of yoga. (laughs) Something's changed much slower in life, I've noticed. But he also noticed the, the possibility of freeing ourselves from that habitual binding and snaring suffering where we don't have to uh, perpetuate that habit of always wanting, always resisting, always struggling. That we have the capacity to be with whatever's here, to know it, to understand it, to allow it, and to let it go. To be at ease with, with whatever circumstances are here. Maybe you touch that sometimes when you're in a yoga pose and your, your hamstrings are burning and instead of moving or fighting, you just soften into it and there's some opening, there's some greater capacity. So both practices are wonderful teachers in teaching us and seeing, revealing where we struggle, where we resist and where we can let go, where we can be at ease. And the fourth noble truth is the path which really includes all aspects of our lives. The cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of ethics, the cultivation of meditation is a complete journey to support this awakening that we have to include everything that we do and everything that we are in this journey. Nothing is left out. That's why there's no breaks here. There's no, oh, well, I'll just go to my room and, you know, check out. No, we, we practice everywhere because we are, our presence, mind is everywhere. I used to hope that I could go to the bathroom and sort of check out from all this mindfulness stuff, you know, but I, it's like, oh, here I am. <laughs> Wherever I go, there I am. Pee here now. That was a joke. <laughs> okay. So another reference the Buddha gave to this quality of light, he said, luminous is this mind. I mentioned this yesterday. Luminous is this mind brightly shining. Maybe your mind didn't feel so luminous today. (laughs) Maybe at moments it did. Luminous is this mind brightly shining. But it is colored, it is obscured by visiting tendencies of mind. It's forces of resistance and wanting and greed and hatred and complaining and judging and So that clarity gets obscured. And our practice is to see when it gets obscured, notice it, allow it, understand it. And by that very quality of presence, 
the luminosity becomes more available. Or as the poet Hafez said, you have all the ingredients within you to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. (laughs) Do not mix them. Of course, we mix them all the time. We have a party. Let's mix them all. This field day of hindrances, which Harry will talk about tomorrow, greed and hatred and restlessness. So I want to say a couple more points before I close. One is... um, the importance of the quality of presence that we bring to our experience. And what I mean by that and what I want to speak to is the importance of having our attention, our mindfulness, our awareness, our attitude that we bring to experience to be suffused with some warmth, with some kindness, with some tenderness, with some love. That when we... when that's not present, usually what happens is we become aware, but it's, it can often be quite cool and rejecting. So we can become quite mindful, but aversive. And so to pay attention to see if you can suffuse, see if you can suffuse that attention with a sense of warmth, a sense, a sense of acceptance sense of kindness. So we'll be we're introducing them the loving kindness practice tomorrow which helps weave that quality into the day. Really important. Just as when you're in a difficult yoga pose, if you're like, I'm just gonna stick this out, you know, it's it's brutal, it's painful. But if there's some sense of softening and yielding and warmth, it's a lot more bearable. Right? So Next time you notice you're in pain, you're in distress, you're in fear, you're in feeling lost or lonely, anxious, deficient, see if there's a a possibility to be tender with that. Just like you would be with a child in distress or a loved one. You wouldn't go, oh, that's just, you know, lost, just, you know, you should be over that already. No, you'd be, oh, you're in pain. I care about you. It's a quality we often lack with ourselves. <coughs> you know, when I f- started practicing, and probably for the first I've been practicing for about 25 years. I'm still waiting for the performance, but anyhow. Um, for about the first half of my, my practice years, um, I was really interested in um, not exactly bypassing. It was more refined than that. It was more um, transcending and just getting away from this massive, this difficult, complex, suffering world and experience of myself. And so I was a very ardent meditator, um, but I really just wanted to sort of somehow escape to some blissful nibbana that would be some beautiful place in the sky that I wouldn't have to deal with the mess of life and complicated relationships and all of that. Um, That's a little simplistic way of putting it, but that was the leaning toward understanding emptiness and freedom, but in in a transcending way that didn't include and embrace the whole of myself and the whole of life. And then um, at some point in the middle of those years, um, uh, having to to 
go through the fire of, of as, as Jung talked about, of, of making the unconscious conscious, of, of having to go through many difficult years of, of, of really of the opposite of that transcendent, but really looking at the places I've been avoiding and neglecting, difficult, dark, lonely places. That the, that what the, the fruit of that was, was the heart started to soften and open. The part of that transcendence was because the, my heart was close to myself. And as I began to descend and feel into and be with all that, the heart naturally started to open, to warm, to be soft, to be gentle, to be kind. And of course that naturally started um, being more apparent also in my life. But I really noticed a profound shift in my practice when it, when it went from trying to get somewhere sort of out of here to simply meeting all of this, all of this complicated, juicy, lovely, beautiful, messy stuff we call being human. And that as the heart started opening, I also noticed I felt less separate, less isolated, less lonely, less cut off. There was a sense of feeling more empathy, more compassion, more sense of we're all in this together, that we all, go, we all have our burdens to carry. Nobody gets through life without a burden, without difficulty. And so as we touch into our own difficulty, it opens our hearts. It inevitably does. It can't help not do that. So I want to read something from Thomas Merton who, speaking in a very beautiful way about this realization that as we start to open our own hearts, as that light awareness shifts into the heart, it also, we see others in a different way. He writes, so Thomas Merton was a monk uh, and he was living in Kentucky in Louisville. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people. That they were mine and I theirs. That we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the the divine became incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. There is no way of telling people they are all walking around shining like the sun. So maybe there's moments when you look around, you're doing your walking meditation outside, and, and maybe you touch a little of that that people are also shining like the sun in their own unique, beautiful, idiosyncratic, quirky ways that we shine. And so lastly, um, as this practice deepens, we, we come to understand it's not about what we do on the mat. It's not about what we do on the cushion that we don't just practice in isolation, but that, that the laboratory of our practice on the mat and the cushion is really what allows us to take this, this practice and these qualities into the world and into our lives. 
that this light of awareness is not just for our own cocoon and our own meditation shawl, but really to be shared and to be brought into every aspect of what we do, every relationship. So I want to close with a couple of readings that point to that. One is a poem from Mary Oliver, actually first from the Buddha, who said, Meditate, live purely, be quiet, do your work with mastery, but like the moon, come out from behind the clouds and shine. But like the moon, come out from behind the clouds and shine. This is from Mary Oliver. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the beech and the oaks and pines, they give off such hints of gladness, I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through this world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the tree stirs in their leaves and call out, stay a while, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into this world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. It's simple, they say, you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. So what's interesting about shining, you know, and it's one of the joys of teaching is, um, uh, and one of the mysteries of presence is we don't see our own presence. It's one of those things that we can't see the radiance that our presence has. And one of the things we notice as, you know, teaching these retreats as we do, and we'll feel it on this retreat, is, you know, people arrive and somewhat tired and stressed from their lives and caught up in whatever's going on. And as awareness grows, as that light grows, as those qualities grow, there's a sense of luminosity, a sense of radiance. We can almost see the light in the room and people's light, eyes and faces glow, and, and this will be true for you. Um, but you won't necessarily see it in yourself, but you'll see it reflected in people here. So I want to close with um, uh, uh, a reading from Annie Dillard, the beautiful writer. Um, and she's speaking to the, this capacity as we, as we develop this presence, we become more sensitized and be more open to being touched in a way to the light or the sacred or the mystery in whatever place it reveals itself. It might be in a person, it might be in a yoga pose, it might be in a tree, it might be in the, the eyes of a child, it might be you know, in the mosquito biting your neck. So she writes, When her doctor took off the bandages and led her into the garden, The girl who was no longer blind saw the trees with the lights in it. The trees with the lights in it. It was for this tree I searched through the peach orchards of summer, in the forests of fall, and down winter and spring for years. Then one day I was walking along Tinker Creek, thinking of nothing at all, and I saw the tree with lights in it. I saw the backyard cedar, where the morning doves 
roost, charged, and transfigured, each cell buzzing with flame. I stood on the grass with lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed. It was less like seeing than like being for the first time seen, not breathless by a powerful glance. The flood of fire abated, but I'm still spending the power. Gradually the lights went out in the cedar, the colors died, the cells unflamed and disappeared. I was still ringing. I had been my whole life a bell and never knew it until that moment I was lifted and struck. I have since only very rarely seen the tree with the lights in it. The vision comes and goes, mostly goes, but I live for it, for the moment when the mountains open and a new light roars in spate through the crack and the mountains slam. So let's sit for a moment. Just noticing the quality of your attention, presence, awareness. Resting in this innate quality, present to whatever appears and disappears within it. Effortless, open, free. Thank you for your attention. So we'll have a walking meditation now, and at nine o'clock we'll have a sitting, and then um, in honor of. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.